Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Apshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter using the handle at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to ZDNet Harvard Business Review, and very often now on Bloomberg, CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and every other media outlet you can name. He's a global sought-after speaker, and in my opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my co-host, Bala Ashtar. He's a author himself, one of the top followers on Twitter and social media channels for CEOs, CIOs, CMOs, and digital officers. And more importantly, uh, he's contributing a lot to ZDNet. You're seeing him in Bloomberg in Canada. And of course, um, definitely a great keynote speaker if you have a chance to bring him on board virtually or, of course, uh, in person when we get back to that. But hey, it's not about us. It's about cool people. And we're bringing someone I've known for a long time back. I'm going to let you do the introductions. But hey, in honor of being in Singapore, which I was supposed to be this week, <laughs> I I've got the background on and we've got someone special. All you, Vala. I I'll tell you, Ray, you and I have a privilege of having global successful CEOs come on our show, and this is no exception. We have Anna Gong, CEO of Perks Technologies. Perks is a data-driven customer engagement and loyalty platform that boosts revenue and marketing ROI, what every business is looking for right now. Anna has 20 years of global technology experience, so she started when she was 11. <laughs> experience in management, consulting, and enterprise software. She established the Asia-Pacific business for Wiley Technologies, was vice president of channel sales for, for software company Infor that we all know, and many other, including entrepreneur and multiple startups. She's the CEO you bring to fix and grow companies. Anna is the winner of the Singapore Woman Entrepreneur Award and was featured in LinkedIn CEO Power Profiles. She's a frequent speaker and a key technology, at key technology conferences. You can follow Anna on Twitter at A-N-N-A-L, G-O-N-G. -G. Welcome, Anna, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, guys. Um, you, the energy is so powerful. It's 2 a.m. here, and I'm excited. <laughs> Better time soon. <laughs> oh, thank you. We're so glad to have you. We wanted you to go first. We know it's late where you are, but hey, a lot of things that you've been doing, given where we are, I mean, you have some very interesting leadership lessons to share with people, and let's start there. What are the top three priorities for a wartime CEO of a startup or large B2C in the middle of this pandemic. And, and they're applicable to other things in crisis management, but you've got them very well defined. Let's start there. My goodness, it's, a, it's been a journey. Um, you know, I feel like constantly in the fixer mode or turnaround mode, um, there's so many scars on my back, I, I can't even tell you. <laughs> You know, when we look at the, the, the industry right now, you, you really have to throw any playbook that you have um, and just have to embrace the, the change and make decisions very quickly and just focus. I think despite the, the challenges um, and all of this disruption happening, uh, we can still find opportunities. And my team and I, we, we've been you know, building task force and all these different um, avenues to think about, okay, our original script and playbook is not going to work in this industry uh, at this, uh, you know, trajectory in the next quarter. Let's figure out what to um, mobilize ourselves and re-center re, um, our teams. So it's been a, a very interesting dynamic the last, uh, and we started this COVID, um, you know, I, I would say planning um, for the last two months already. Um, so Singapore has been, you know, the government has been doing a phenomenal job in managing this uh, crisis. And so I think it's just stay focused and manage your stress. I think we're, we're not talking about mental stress enough. I mean, being an entrepreneur is already tough enough, but com compounding this with, a, you know, this COVID crisis is uh, even more stressful. So just be mindful of, you know, eating healthy and because if you're the founder and you're down, um, you know, during this time, you, you can't be a good leader. So being a wartime CEO is, is tough. Just make swift decisions, stay focused and find opportunities. Uh, related to that, and, and it's, how do you keep your energy? 
right? I mean, how do you keep your energy, keep people inspired? Because it's it's hard, right? I mean, everything's falling workouts, apart around work, you. You know, work, you're supposed to keep people workouts inspired. Workouts at midnight. I know. I, I just went to do a workout at midnight so I have enough energy. You guys are infectious already, you know? So I, I am mindful of not, you know, um, really working my, my butt off. And I, sometimes you have to take a, a rest. You have to pause. You know, and I do practice meditation and mindfulness, but I tell you, you know, you, you really have no, no rest in the last few weeks. It's been mobilizing, panicking, being paranoid. I mean, during this crisis, we're already paranoid CEOs, right? Um, but even more so at this time, and we're, we're just trying to survive. Everybody's trying to figure out what's next. Sure, sure. I remember uh, reading uh, Andy Grove in the, I think it was maybe late 80s, early 90s, uh, when he was the CEO at Intel. And he, his uh, thesis was a healthy paranoia and sense of urgency is what will keep you to continue to innovate and continue to you know, leverage technology in your culture to serve your customers. So I suspect, um, well, now, as you said, all of us have this healthy sense of um, uncertainty, uh, you know, it's okay to be sad, it's okay to be afraid, it's okay to throw away the playbook because frankly, this hasn't happened in our generation. You know, I, I, I don't, you know, the, you know, the, I, I, my kids keep asking me, dad, there's no sports. Yeah. When was the last time there was no sports? I'm like, by the way, I've lost all my hair due to sports. So yeah. <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually more mindful and calm since I'm not rooting for my Celtics and Patriots and so on and so forth. But, but when you talk about the scars and being a wartime CEO, and you actually have a track record of coming into places, shaking things up and building just, a growth. So turn around, King, cream. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like and, in, and, out, and, done. Right, right. And a sports analogy, you know, I, I heard the first one through the wall is always the bloodiest. So you have to have, you have, to have those, uh, that grit and persistence and strength. What are some of the things you have in your toolbox that help you be a successful wartime CEO? Because There'll be moments of peace where even a wartime CEO is meditating and, and appreciative of psychological safety and, and psychological health in order to be able to keep fighting a good fight. Possibly because I've been through it so many times and um, the resilience and grit inherent in me, uh, I think, I don't know why I attract, uh, you know, challenges. <laughs> I, I tend to be thrown into these, you know, trial by fire or fix it and go turn around this. And even though it's not a turnaround, you, you end up turning around. You know, when I landed in Singapore in 2009 uh, with CA, they said um, uh, six months later, they said, we need you more in Japan. And I had to like literally pack up and head to Japan because the fire was burning, you know, and the business was much bigger in Japan. So you end up turning around the business there, coming back. So it was constantly turning around, shifting. I've been through the dot-com bust. I've been through 9-11, been through the financial crisis. You know, all of these different, um, I would say, challenges throughout the cycles, you, you tend to find ways to overcome. And I think grit and resilience are, are huge. Uh, if you don't really inherently have that, um, it's really hard to fight that. You know, you actually went through a whole bunch of other uh, health scares as well while you're in APAC as well. I mean, you, you've experienced this before. You kind of know where that's heading. Um, and so, um, I mean, we're in the situation where, I mean, people are no longer thinking about growth. That, that's wishful thinking. And companies are trying to figure out how to stay afloat. Um, but but how, how do you do that? How do you think about growth amidst the pandemic? Lay out that foundation so that, you know, people can be prepared when that moment happens so that you're ready. Yes, um, you know, not only are the founders panicking and being paranoid, but investors as well. You know, we in Asia, we had a, um, a series of B2C investments, right? Can you imagine right now if you're in the B2C and everything's locked down, you can't even go out. A lot of the, you know, even solutions that tailor to retail, uh, the market, the segment um, is now in dire straits. So it, it's really about lifestyle and you know, I feel that in Asia, first of all, we leapfrog into mobility and everyone is stuck on their mobile, um, so whether you're at home or at work. Um, so now even more so driving urgency for these large enterprises. So it's almost in our favor. Um, so this is where I 
find the opportunities in, in the midst of a crisis. But um, we were also mobilizing on how to even shift the mindset from, from the private sector. And Singapore just announced a stimulus plan, um, you know, a budget of $33 billion to support the SMEs, the private sector, the, the employees are impacted. So they were first in Asia to announce it, and then now um, Malaysia follows suit, and perhaps the other countries will too. We had, uh, I saw Mark, Mark Cuban, you know, a, a successful, uh, you know, entrepreneur and businessman uh, yesterday say that how companies treat their employees and their customers will define their brand for years to come during this time. Right. So as you consult CEOs and business leaders, uh, what, what, what advice do you give them in terms of understanding the the that in every crisis there is an opportunity and the way you garner or the way you earn loyalty may be different now than even a month ago in your case maybe two three months ago but certainly you know uh, in the u.s perhaps even a month ago so how, how, how do you guide business leaders to truly understand what meaningful connections are all about and the power of loyalty based on your core values guiding principles and how you behave right now in this incredibly difficult time. And this goes back to uh, wartime CEO, right? What the traits and the characteristics, I think these challenges will define your own, you know, character um, of whether you were a peacetime CEO versus a, a wartime CEO. And so, uh, you know, a colleague of mine or actually a fellow founder, a friend of mine, because we're a bit older than the, the younger uh, Southeast founders, and we have a few more scars than they do. And so we, we actually mobilized, uh, a scrambled actually, scrambled a call uh, with a bunch of founders and created a report that we shared on LinkedIn as well to the wider community. And essentially the report shared about, you know, 20 something founders um, had a lot of stress and challenges around this um, challenging time. And fundamentally delay in revenue, you know, having to lay off uh, employees and so forth. And so just even having that network effect of, you know, helping each other and guiding some of these um, founders uh, in, in the, the most challenging times, because this is the first time and most of them are under 30 years old. And um, so this, you know, Southeast Asia also is quite new to the tech space. And so we're, we want to use some of our experiences to, uh, to help as much as we can. And also we're learning a lot from them while we're helping. And so it, it's, a, it's a very nice uh, way to kind of round this back um, to ourselves as well. So, so lean into your network and, and leverage each other to, to, to get through this, which is great advice, great advice, absolutely. Well, hey, look, this part of it, we've been talking about what a future pandemic playbook looks right. And, and every crisis is different. And, and so the challenge is, how do you do this? Because you don't always have a playbook. You don't always have a script. Um, I mean, you're pivoting business models. So how does it happen? And, and how, how do you find other opportunities? Uh, as you know this, the support networks you're talking about makes a lot of sense. The question is, you know, what, what are you pulling on to be able to figure this out? Well, because we're redefining loyalty in, in the digital economy and coming back to Perks, um, the, the solution that we're offering, um, we're front and center in, in the mobile economy. So if you think about traditional service providers like banking uh, sector, uh, telcos, uh, insurance, and, and other traditional retail conglomerates, in Asia, because everything now is controlled by super apps or led by super apps, so even telcos and banking and retail, the, the whole ecosystem is becoming grayer and grayer because of fintech, because of super apps, as well as the other sectors, right, mobile first strategies. And so all these is now fueling a competitive ecosystem that's getting grayer and grayer. And so when we look at mobility in this crisis, everybody's it's locked down at home. Um, so if I actually, I'm a bank or a telco, my entire new business model is fueled by lifestyle now. 
I'm not just giving you data. You're not just going there to pay your bill. So there's a lot more urgency. And this is what we're doing in terms of, um, you know, redefining loyalty is how do we help you stand up a marketplace, a super app in no time and help you engage your customers, um, you know, during the crisis or not, but to, to really keep them coming back and grow the lifetime value and engage them in a meaningful and a gamified, you know, interactive way as well. And Asia is fantastic for that. But loyalty is hard, right? We're trading loyalty for value. We're trading loyalty for status. We're trading loyalty for convenience, right? We're even trading loyalty just because people are frivolous, right? It's a hard, it's a very hard problem to solve. And uh, tell us yes, a little bit how Perks does it, so. Yeah, so that's why I, I think we're redefining loyalty. Loyalty is dead. Okay, let's just face it, right? But where wow. is, is loyalty resilient? Um, where is, uh, what industries is there inherent retention already banking i can't live without banking as you know as a human being i cannot live without my mobile right telco services i cannot live without insurance i cannot live without grocery or certain you know must-haves so inherently we built a platform that was purpose-built to solve these uh, different industries most loyalty platforms the, the first gen was solving a coalition that like airline coalition or maybe some form of um, grocery chain whatnot and it's all on-prem solutions back in focus if you look at what today's a society um, they want mobile real-time engagement relevant engagement if it suits my lifestyle make it easy for me to make a decision then that's where I want to go but every bank every telco is becoming a super app becoming a fintech player because they're preserving their turf so we find that our solutions just in time now uh, you know in terms of meeting the whole digital economy Question from Nicole France, she covers CX for us. Have you guys managed to gamify good hand washing? <laughs> <laughs> and, other, and other coronavirus protocols. I don't think you can even get hand washing now, but nowadays, it controls everything, right? <laughs> and uh, my, my, uh, my last question, if, when you think about, uh, you know, the, perhaps the most popular persona that you sell to, the CMO, uh, what does a wartime CMO look like? Uh, does she have the same characteristics of a, as a wartime CEO? Or does she have to balance the science and the art of connecting and engaging and earning trust and advocacy in the future? Absolutely. I think if you look at um, the, the environment, you have to change your narrative, right, based on the moment that you're serving. And we realize that Google search is, uh, you know, has gone down 30%. You know, wow. people are distracted, you know, all of the, but then traffic coming inbound to us, our, our traditional um, inbound leads actually spend about, you know, 30 something seconds on our website. Now they're actually spending more than a minute and a half. So, you know, they're really looking and spending time and, and researching. Now you have their undivided attention. They're captive. What are they doing? They're now focusing, they're hyperproductive now. You're not distracted with your colleagues left, right, and center, no noise around you except for kids, right? <laughs> and and even that, you put your headset on. And so we find that our employees and, and even our, our um, customers, project teams and marketers, they're hyper, hyper focused and much more productive oh. now that they're just sitting on a chair. There's oh. no one to distract you. So it's back it's to back. They're, they're getting more done actually in this kind of crisis mode. Oh, there's that a silver awesome. lining in all of this. Wow. There is. That is awesome. That is awesome. Hey, so one of the things you've been actually an advocate for are women in tech, especially in APAC. Um, just wanted to spend a little bit of time, we're running out of time, to talk about, talk about how it is. How is the scene in APAC and Singapore, especially very, very progressive cities, city states? Um, but of course, around APAC, you've been actually advocating this uh, all over the place. Yeah, there's still a shortage of us, uh, especially in the enterprise SaaS. I don't really know how many of us are out there running enterprise SaaS companies in Asia. Most of them, even in India, are led by uh, men. And so when we look at Southeast Asia, per se, even out of Singapore, a lot of it is either fintech or perhaps e-commerce. Um, and so we're, we're trying to grow the ecosystem a lot more. And some of them are in, in ad tech as well. Um, but MarTech, if you, you know, put us in that category, MarTech is not as, a, as sophisticated as the market as the North American market, right? And okay. so we have uh, investors coming out of New York, Boston, uh, San Francisco, 
um, because they they understand the space so well. And so in our next round fundraising after this uh, crisis ends, uh, we, we're right now bootstrapping as much as we can. Um, but in the next round, we would probably look for a strategic SaaS expert, you know, focusing and understands the space quite well so that we it can add a lot more value to us. We're here live from Singapore. Thank you so much. Anna Gong, the CEO at Perks Technologies. You can follow her at Twitter at Twitter at Anna, L-G-O-N-G. Um, more importantly, if you're looking for information on uh, women in tech, pioneer, entrepreneurship, and leadership, follow her and I'll follow, of course, her company. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Thanks so much. Two, two in the We're morning. We're going to get a Hainan chicken rice once this is all over. <laughs> I'm going to head back. i got to get back to Singapore. Wow, right. Awesome cities. What a privilege to have guests dialing in at, you know, two in the morning to join us. So it's pretty amazing. Uh, and speaking of amazing, our next guest, uh, Matthew Sweezy, and only his closest friends call him Sweezy, <laughs> joins us. He's the Director uh, of Marketing Strategy and Insights at Salesforce, so I'm proud to call him a colleague. And he's uh, uh, author of a new book that just came out this week, The Context Marketing Revolution, How to Motivate Buyers in the Age of Infinite Media. We're going to talk about what that means. You know, we only invite, Ray and I, and this is honest truth, we only invite uh, authors that we believe can add value to, to businesses and markets and leadership. And, and Matthew is absolutely top of that list. Uh, as a researcher, thinker, award-winning marketeer, writer, author of a prior best-selling book, Automation for Dummies, uh, Matthew is regarded as one of the leading minds on the future of marketing. The first time I saw him was delivering a keynote in Boston to a thousand plus audience and everyone was mesmerized, including myself. His visionary insights into consumer behavior, technology, new business strategies, and uh, has changed the way startups, Fortune 500 nonprofit organizations alike find customers, breakthroughs, and build modern brands. I've seen him in action. And uh, one of the reasons our marketing cloud is successful is because of Sweezy's insights. <laughs> in addition, to his work uh, with brands, he's a host of an award-winning podcast called the Electronic Propaganda Society, and he's a regular contributor to Economist, Forbes, Harvard Business Review, and Ad Age. In fact, the book, the new book, was published by Harvard Business. You can follow him, a must-follow on Twitter at M S W E E Z E Y. Uh, welcome, Sweezy, <laughs> to uh, Disrupt TV. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is fun. <laughs> hey Matt, hey, thanks a lot for joining us. Where are you calling in from? Uh, calling in from Charleston, South Carolina. Awesome. Place to hang out. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, you, you talk about infinite media era, right? Yeah. And what is it? How is it different from the previous era? I mean, you know, it's, I mean, I totally get it. We're talking about infinite computing holders. One of the guys talking about this, but infinite media, let's start there and talk about how this has changed the way we look at marketing. Yeah, so first off, let's take two steps back, right? So media theory is a concept that media environments dictate a lot of human behavior, right? This is Marshall McLuhan, 1960. So what I was able to do is looking at what is it going to cost to break through the noise, started tracking this concept of noise. And what I really found out was we entered a new media environment. And what that means is when we say infinite media, it's in contrast to limited media. And it's really three basic concepts, creation, distribution, and access. Now that we live in a world where not only can anyone create content, humans have become the number one creators of noise. Number two are their personal and connected devices, right? And then under that and a far, far, far down are brands, right? And so when we start to think about this, what we need to realize is business strategy and marketing strategy are games that we play given the environments that we operate in. And a shift from a limited media environment to the infinite media environment means we need to really rethink the foundation elements of those games. Um, and so that's really what infinite media means. It means it's a new type of noise coming from a new player um, and it acts a totally different way. And in that new environment, consumers make decisions in radically different ways and marketing has to change to adapt. Uh, Ray and I are competing. Who can better promote your book? <laughs> I, think, I think I'm winning, Ray. I'm winning. Totally, uh, he's totally winning, Ray. He's he, totally has winning. he has the book. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I have the book. I've read it and I can't wait to write about it uh, next week in ZDNet because every CMO should have this book on their table. So, so, so you know, uh, by the way, I've been accused of creating infinite noise myself. <laughs> and, I, I, and most of the time it's not in a form of a compliment. But, 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 but let's talk about that. How has this infinite media or specifically infinite noise, how has that changed the environment for the consumer? Uh, so 
as I'm going through my journey of awareness and understanding and, 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 and you know, the, 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 the traditional marketing funnel, which again, in your book, you talk a lot about journeys and we'll talk about that. Talk about infinite noise and what, how, how, is, how does that change the way companies should engage authentically and in a meaningful way with consumers? Yeah, it really changes a couple of basic things. One is the fact that now all humans are hyper-connected to each other and everyone else, right? That changes a couple of basic aspects of one, decision-making process. So if we just think about this one basic concept, when humans go to make decisions, the goal is to mitigate risk, right? So how do we mitigate risk in the modern era? Am I going to stand in front of a wall of products and pick up product packaging and say, which one of these products is best? Or am I going to pull up my phone and ask a question and then get trusted answers and then go find myself on a digital journey because I'm engaging with content from other people. I think that's one of the big things we have to realize is when we went into the digital era, we said, hey, free distribution. I can, I can create content and push it out to the world. We've gotten to a point where content is so, there's so much content. It's actually at an infinite level that we now have to use artificial intelligence to mitigate that content. Right. So there's now an intermediary between you and your content. So step number one is now all things are considered purchases because they can be. And that's a radically different concept for us to understand. And so the old idea of, you know, you need to be share of conversation. Well, the journey that someone goes on is separate from the conversation that happens in the marketplace. If we don't own both share of conversation and share of journey, share of journey is easy to supersede share of conversation because it's in the context of the moment, helping them solve that immediate goal. Very smart. Very smart. Wow. So this means that with that proliferation of information that's out there, um, if you're not contextually relevant, I'm not going to pay attention. That's basically right. what you're saying, right? Well, there's, and, two, and, there's two parts to it. Yeah, that's one. And the other piece is I'm uh, authentic or trusted. You're not going to pay attention either, right? Yeah. So, so what do people do? I mean, people have been spamming. I'm getting phone calls like I never got before. They know we're all home <laughs> sheltered in place. I mean, you know, yeah. like... I mean, what do, what do businesses do to get your attention if they're not relevant? Like, how do they become relevant? Well, number one, they stop trying to get your attention, right? Let's, let's just go with the elephant in the room, right? Uh, Doc Searles, you guys know Doc, uh, one mm -hmm. of my mentors, one of my favorite people. Me and Doc were having brunch. Uh, it's probably two years ago at this point. We're sitting there and he goes, Matt, just think about this. He goes, there are over 600 million devices with ad blocking on them. That's the largest consumer boycott to ever exist in the history of the world. Right now, what are they boycotting? They're boycotting that very idea that we just need a better way to get somebody's attention. And so what we must realize is getting someone's attention. Yes. When people engage with us, they are giving us their attention, but no one just said, Hey, I want to give you my attention. There was a problem that they wanted to solve. There was a goal that they wanted to accomplish. If we help them accomplish that goal, we then get their time and we break in by solving problems that they have, right? It's all about, when we say context, it's not about how do I take the message that I wanna put out there and make it contextually relevant to an individual, it's the reverse. It's what is the person trying to solve and how can I then create an experience that solves that? That's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, that, that's it. If, whoever's watching this, rewind that last 15 seconds and watch it about 10 times because that was gold nuggets that was just dropped on you. And, 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 and those, these, this wisdom and, and the book that you have is, is evidence-based, research-based. Uh, you, you, know, you, you looked at survey data from 11,000 businesses to, to develop your thesis. And one of the things you found was that 16% of the high-performing companies that enjoyed consistent hyper-growth focused on crafting those experiences you mentioned. So yep. it, what they understood that contextual intelligence is key when you're in an experience-led economy. So, but the other thing you found, which may be a blind spot to many, is that this is not an age issue. Crafting experiences for someone in their 50s is as important as someone in their 20s. So talk to us about this notion or myth that, that an experience-led economy is only for the millennials or Gen Z, for my Canadian audience. <laughs> and, and, and really, all of us, including, you know, Ray, who's getting up there in age, is looking for... <laughs> <laughs> looking for great experiences. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so once again, yes, lots of research goes into this book, right? When we specifically talk about consumer behavior, there is the argument, right? So take one step back. 
I wrote this book to help a lot of us marketers, right? A lot of us know we need to be focused on experience. Trying to get that message to others to let us focus on experience is not always that easy, right? So here's the research. We've looked at, and I believe this research is about 20,000 consumers over about two to two year time frame. And what we found is there's only about a 12% delta between the answer of a millennial and the answer of a baby boomer when it comes to experience. And these are very specific questions such as, how do you feel about giving up personal data in exchange for a better experience? What is your concept of loyalty and how does it affect your relationship with the brand, right? There's only 12% delta between those responses, right? And so what we must realize is it's not an age thing. And that's when we go back to the environment. Why do I start off the book talking about the infinite media environment? Because everyone is in this environment and we are all affected the same way. Let me show you this really short story about my grandfather, right? So six years ago, I'm on the farm. We're a farm family. I'm on the farm and my grandmother has like a 1968 Electrolux vacuum with bags. She runs out of bags, right? So what does trusted grandson do? Pulls out phone, goes to Amazon and orders bags and they're there in three days, right? I become like the superhero. Well, they start to realize that I have the superpower. And so then two years ago, I'm out in the field with my grandfather working on a tractor, right? 80-year-old man, farmer his entire life. The old concept that old dogs don't learn new tricks, right? We would expect him to go to the store, chat with buddies, have a coffee. Instead, he turns to me and says, hey, why don't you Google that thing up for me, right? He doesn't even know the correct terminology. He's never been on the internet, but his buying behavior changed because he lives in the environment and he knows what is possible, right? So all of us are affected the same way in this environment. And that's just the basic premise of why it's so important to understand this is an environmental impact at the awesome. highest level. Awesome. All right, let's go deep. Let's go deep. You're, you're, you're one that it. always goes deep with actionable ideas. Um, there are five elements of context you talk about. Available, permission, personal, authentic, and purposeful. Let's yeah. talk a little about that. Yeah, so those are the five elements of context, right? We must have something that's available for it to be a positive experience. Um, permission, you know, this is a continuation of Seth Godin's work, right? Seth actually even wrote a nice review for the book. But it's the concept of that, you know, if people ask for these things, it's much easier to motivate them, right? We get to the aspects of personal, right? This is not personalized. This is how personally can you deliver it, right? That's once again, what's the big thing that we've missed? The internet is not about how I can distribute free stuff. It's about interconnectivity between humans, right? We need to connect other humans together in better ways. And then the final two aspects are authentic. If people are exposed to an infinite amount of content created by their friends and family, they know what authentic content and experiences look like. And if you don't create that, it's obvious and they don't want it. And then finally, it's purpose, right? We've got to focus on something past your product right? Purpose-driven businesses are two times more likely to be high performers and outperform their direct competition, right? So when we look at those things, those are the elements that make an experience really powerful. I, uh, I asked a previous uh, guest uh, who's a CEO of a marketing automation loyalty SaaS platform, important characteristics of a marketeer, a, a trailblazer marketeer, maybe it's a CMO, maybe it's head of content. Um, when you work with all these customers and you consult and guide thousands of customers throughout the course of a calendar year, what are some of the characteristics of these, characteristics of these high performing trailblazers? Are they more the creative type? Are they more the maybe engineering or scientific or numbers people? Do you see a shift? Uh, when you recognize speed, personalization and, and, and context and intelligence is the new currency in a digital economy, in a hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy, are there certain muscles that you need to have in order to lead an organization today successfully as a marketeer? What are uh, the findings? Totally. So the old idea that all we need is a better creative message is completely just, we have to tear that concept apart, right? No mm -hmm. one wants us to force messages upon them. Do we need creativity? Yes, but we need to find creative ways to work with our audience, not on our audience, right? Uh, so when we find, like when we start to pull out what are the key characteristics, what we see is a couple of basic things. One is that they understand what an experience is and completely focus on experience and have executive support to do that. Next is they operate in an agile format, right? We all understand the power of agile methodologies. They operate in an agile format. And three is they are deeply customer centric, right? They have regular calls with their, their customers, regular calls with their prospects. They understand what their real goals are and they're able to solve them. Right. Just think about this current state in time. Everyone is giving away content for free. Content is a commodity. I think a lot of brands are about to drive people to a very bad experience 
and they're about to have a negative consequence as the outcome, right? People aren't wanting content because they want content. There's the context of education, better business outcomes, right? Let's help them solve those things. Don't just give them the free content, guide them through it. Give, give them, you know, follow up with them. Are they getting the value they, they want, right? Let's be very careful about giving all this stuff away for free because that's not really the value they want. Sure, no, sure, sure. No, and that's part of your context problem, right? Um, I mean, I got another comment here from Nicole. She's like, this is a big part of the problem. Two, not all content is created equally. Uh, so some of it's meaningful, relevant, and valuable, but a whole lot isn't, and not even entertaining. <laughs> so, <laughs> so some interesting comments about that. Um, but you're also shift. You also see the shift, right? It's it's not marketing anymore. You're talking about from marketing to customer experience, yeah. and this is part of it, right? But but what happens, right? What happens when you're comp when you're not competing on content and you're competing on experience? How do you behave differently? Yeah, so let's think about a couple of basic ways. Number one is we have to own the experience. When I say we, the organization has to own the experience, right? When we built businesses, we built them in silos. What's the problem with silos? Well, they don't share things, whether it's data, technology. And if they don't share a common thread of what is a consistent experience, then there's not going to be one created, right? And if you just do the basic math, right? Let's say there's four steps on a customer journey. If we just increase the efficiency of 1% at each stage, that's a 40% net lift on the back end. By only increasing the efficiency of an experience to move someone to the next stage by 1%, right? There's no messaging or creative campaign that can do that no. on a consistent and, and regular basis. Right? So number one is we've got to say that there needs to be an executive ownership of the experience and it is not the CEO's job, right? This is where we see chief experience officer, chief growth officer. I don't care what you call it. It's what do they do? They must be the cohesive glue between all of the experiences and measure that, right? If it's not measured, it's not improved. Step one, right? Only experience. Step two is we need to realize that marketing is now decentralized, right? The yes. marketing department was the organization that created content, but now what we have is everyone that's customer facing is marketing, right? There's onboarding and support. There's onboarding to your blog. There's, you know, email communications from the service and product users. We now need to realize that marketing is decentralized and now what we're going to start seeing is just like we see citizen scientists and citizen data scientists, we're going to have to have citizen marketers, which means we're going to have to have a way of educating all these people efficiently on what is best practice. How do we do these things? Uh, and so those are the two steps. One, executive ownership to decentralization. But wait, John Hagel yeah, called it, right? Fun. We're all infomediaries now. Yeah. We can go back to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and Hegel is the one that talked about silos and, and flows. Uh, so another uh, incredible thought leader that understood the detriment of consuming and protecting resources, silo mentality versus understanding the power of movement. My last question, Matthew, you know, when I, when I you know, I, I, you know, you and I create content all the time. And I always think about trustworthiness when I'm creating content from a tweet to an article to the podcast we're doing right now. Meaning, am I gaining the trust of my viewers, my network, based on what I'm sharing? And Rachel Botsman, who came and spoke to you and I at Salesforce, uh, at lecturer at uh, Oxford, who was with us at Dreamful, Dream, uh, Dream, um, Dreamforce, talked about definition of trustworthiness. And she said, it's, it's a co competence plus character. And the competence was capability and, and reliability. Character was integrity and benevolence. Benevolence yes. meaning what is your intention behind that content you're about to push out? I so believe that the power of understanding contextual intelligence and marketing and journeys is critical. Without it, you can't succeed in a digital economy. But being mindful of benevolence, what are your motives? Talk about motives yes. and trustworthiness in terms of the importance of being a successful marketeer. Thousand percent. So let's go back to those five things Ray was asking about and authentic, right? And I break authentic down into three key things, empathetic, tone, and consistency, right? And empathy is number one, right? So we must be empathetic, right? If you are not empathetic with the individual, and let's think about what is an empathetic contextual experience. Well, I fly a lot. Everyone in this call, we fly a lot, right? How many times do I sit in an airplane seat and see the exact same safety video, right? I'm not going to watch it anymore. Right? If you spend $10 million, I'm not going to watch it any more than if you spend 10 cents and have a 12 year old make it. Right? So what does Delta do? They realize that their business clientele is being forced to watch the same thing over and over. So they make a new one every month. 
right? So we can start to be empathetic and understand what are their actual needs. And it's that empathy that should be driving what we do. It's that empathy that has us talk to our customers. It's that empathy that makes us follow up and ask, did you even receive the experience that you were expecting, right? Just think about this basic concept. How many marketers ever follow back up with somebody that watched something or downloaded something and ask them, did you receive the experience that you expected? I've asked this question all over the globe. Less than 1% of marketers have ever done that. But we would fire any product, wow. or any product owner who never followed up with someone who used their product to ask them, is this fulfilling your needs? Right? And we need to start thinking about it. And that's really what we mean about empathy. Wow, this is awesome. I think people need to read the book. I think they can start there. Matt Sweezy or Sweezy, business review author, uh, part of the alumni on HBR. Awesome. And marketing insights at Salesforce. Uh, very, very important. You can talk to him. You can check him out at M Sweezy, S W E E Z E Y. And of course, um, get the book. Uh, get the book anywhere books are get sold. The book. Get the book. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Stay safe. Enjoy Thank Charleston. Thank you very much. He's a, he's a exceptionally bright uh, marketeer. And, you know, I, I, I played a CMO uh, for three years and I wish I knew a fraction of what he did when I was running uh, marketing. Uh, okay. For, uh, this is what we call the cleanup hitter spot where we typically bring hall of famers. And now we have two, two pioneers to come and help us uh, round up the show today. We have, Christine Tao, co-founder and CEO of Sounding Board, a Silicon Valley company startup redefining how organizations are developing their leaders. God, we need that now more than ever. Christine's extraordinary rapid career growth to executive management in media, mobile, and tech sectors in Silicon Valley became an inspiration for finding uh, Sounding Board. And as she began to manage large teams and be responsible for growing revenue, it became clear that she needed the sounding board to coach her on development of leadership skills. And that's where we have Lori Mason, who's also with us, co-founder, president, chief coaching officer at Sounding Board. Lori is a seasoned executive coach who's guided hundreds of corporations through one-on-one -on -one coaching and uh, delivering business outcomes and developing critical leadership skills. You can follow Christine on Twitter at C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E-P-T-A-O. And you can follow Lori on Twitter at L-O-R-I-M-A-Z-A-N. Welcome, Christina and Lori, to Disrupt TV. Hey, Matt. <laughs> so great to be here. Thanks for having us. Hey, great thanks a lot for being here. We're glad to have you here. And uh, we're talking a lot here about what's shifting in the future of work. So let's start here. So, Christine, start telling us about what is Sounding Board and why this represents the future of work. Yeah, so at Sounding Board, you know, like Bala had mentioned, our mission is really to develop the next generation of leaders, but to do that in a way that's personalized, continuous, and really drives real behavior shifts. So the way that we do that today is we have a solution that combines best-in-class executive coaches with scalable software that allows us to deliver the experience completely virtually, so definitely equipped for this new feature of work that we're in. Um, and allows us to do it in a way that's data-driven, it's measurable because it's outcomes-focused, and it actually really gives the companies we work with actionable intelligence about what the needs are of their talent and their leaders and what skills that they're developing. So, um, and as you know, um, Lori was actually my coach, um, and that's how we got together to start this company. So it's like the hair club for men, you know, I'm not only the president, but I'm also the client. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> so for, for either of you, you know, what, what was the impetus? Did, did you realize that, you know, the folks that you reported to needed to develop skills continuously? Was it you saw that certain attributes and, and learnings helped you accelerate your career path and it was time to pay it forward? I mean, what was the reason behind, you know, finding a new company? Well, I'll start with my side of things, and then I think Christine can add a personal point of view. Um, I spent a lot of time working with senior leaders and CEOs of both public and private companies, and what those people told me every time is, I wish I had this earlier in my career. 
Wow. So traditional executive coaching really was only offered to the highest level leaders in the organization due to the cost. Uh, and everybody wanted it earlier. And I think the future of work is leaders are going to be taking on more responsibility and uh, especially in a remote way much earlier in their career. And they need this kind of personalized one-on-one -on -one development that we offer starting from the first time, first day you're a manager all the way up through the C-suite. And okay, so, so the spectrum is from, uh, you know, a manager, director, vice president, senior vice president, CXO. Yep. Terrific. Yep. And, and it used to be 20 years ago, large corporations had a 20 year long leadership development path you went on. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. 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 So yeah. you have to have some way to develop yourself. And we're a great opportunity because it's virtual, it's mobile, it's global. Um, it's just a really great fit for uh, what's currently happening. And we've yeah, been at absolutely. it for quite a few years now. So we're, we've gotten pretty good at it. There's no better time than now. for Hey, uh, leadership by teleconference. Here we are. So what does that mean? How does that change, right? I mean, Christine and Lori, like when you're working with folks as you're helping them out, um, you know, is, 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 do you still have that need to meet in person? No, I mean, oh. that was... That was one of our um, sort of hypotheses that we needed to prove out, right? Could something that was so personal and so intimate, you know, a one-on-one -on -one relationship really be replicated and have the same impact if you didn't ever meet your coach in person? Um, and I think the data that we've seen shows it to be absolutely true. For our coaches and the way our platform works, we have technology that drives a match. Think about it like, you know, a profile that you build Every user comes on and builds a profile that's got multiple dimensions and our coaches have been fit against that as well. And sounding board, actually, we think a really interesting approach is we drive and we recommend the match. So and we do that because we have a lot of data that drives and we understand what will actually create that relationship that would drive development in someone. And our data has shown that this approach we've seen we've gotten a 97 percent success rate on a first match wow. and and these folks have wow. never met their coach in person so wow. for us that's been pretty incredible when you think about something as intimate as a one-to-one -one relationship where you're really using your coach to help you develop a lot of these skills that you don't have any other resource to go to that's amazing that's amazing what a, what a time to disrupt the you know leadership training with a head start because you can do it remotely and virtually I, I, I want to share an experience I had yesterday. Yesterday, uh, new not necessarily new employees, but young talent at Salesforce. And there was about 25 uh, individuals on this Zoom uh, <laughs> screen. And, uh, and uh, I spent an hour talking about uh, uh, creating content and, and personal branding, your digital footprint and digital exhaust, and how do you authentically engage on different platforms. And, and as I, I'm watching, I'm, I'm looking specifically for head nods. I'm looking for people taking notes. I'm take, looking for people taking pictures because I'm asking myself, I'm not in a room. I can really read a room well when I'm in a room. Yes. <laughs> so, but, so, but virtually, I, I just find myself scanning 20 different headshots to make sure that I'm getting the cues whether I need to slow down, speed up. So do you teach leaders now that they are essentially forced to, and this will be a game changer moving forward, to remotely manage and mentor and coach and sponsor groups or individuals and what sort of body language and what sort of cues do they need to look to ensure that you have an engaged person on the other side of the, you know, other side of the, <laughs> other side of the screen. Can you give us, is that part of the training in terms of being able to read your audience and, and adjusting how you lead in an effective manner? Sorry for that long question. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I, I think that's a concern of a lot of people. So yeah. there are some ways you can read the body language um, on video. And then you also have to add in some additional tools there. So one is you have to take the cues that are more visible to you. So one is tone of voice. Uh, when people are talking, what are you getting from that? Facial expression is a good one. 
Some people like me use their hands more so you can tell if they're engaged. Uh, but you're not going to get as much body language as you would if you're in the same room with folks. Um, one of the key little points, though, is, is the person leaning in? Or are they, do they suddenly lean back in their chair? You can see that. Yeah. So if they're in and then they lean back, that usually means they checked out. If they're back and they lean in, like, oh, you got their attention. They could just be shifting their weight or something, but generally that's, that's a good one. And then, you have, not. yeah, you actually have to ask. Because yeah, right, one thing right. you have to ask, how's this coming across? Are you tracking me? What am I missing? What do you need? What are you looking for? You And chat is a good way to do that. Right. Um, you can have hand raising. How many people tracking me? Raise your hand. So you have to create a lot more interaction than you did before, which is actually better because no one wants a monologue. For, for what it's worth, my one cent, my company does thousands of in-person events, thousands. I don't want to give the specific number, but literally <laughs> thousands. Uh, and, and, and so we now have to reinvent ourselves just like all other companies. Right. And leadership training is lacking in all companies in terms of how to effectively communicate remotely. Yep. So the empathy, tone, sentiment, eye contact, body language, hands going everywhere. <laughs> so so I, I have to tell you, uh, we companies are going to look for you to help us uh, really transform. And at, Ray is a you know world-renowned keynote speaker. So you can talk about how many companies right now are struggling to determine how to connect in a meaningful right. digital way. All yeah. leaders are struggling with this. Yeah, we're actually kind of pros at it because we've been doing it for mm -hmm. quite a few years now. And we have a global network ourselves. And we do a lot of training for our folks. And so we do that all virtually already. Uh, so we, a lot of people knocking on your door. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think the other thing people are looking for is, is how to lead in times of crisis. Yeah. Uh, and I think we have a point of view, which is really leaders are made in times of crisis. Like when everything is going really well, even awesome. poor leadership skills can get by. Awesome. But once you're in a crisis environment, you need good leaders if you're going to survive this and move forward. That was, yeah, uh, no, that was definitely awesome. agree. Definitely agree. That's definitely one of the things that are happening. So what is the, uh, Lori, what is the most common issue that you're helping your coaches with right now? Um, is it performance? Is it learning? Is it transformation? Is it, is it dealing with ambiguity? Uh, ambiguity is good. And so we're all about leveling up their leadership capabilities. The most challenging things, um, especially when things are changing, and it is changing right now, but you know it has been a changing environment for a while. You're dealing already with layoffs or acquisitions or high growth or reorgs, product changes. Those are all changes that people have to manage through. So I think the, the most challenging is the ambiguity, like how to make decisions without having 100% of the information and make those decisions very rapidly. Um, another is how do you stay strategic? Like you're so focused on the current situation, you can lose your, your future site for your organization and be focused just in this moment and then miss what's gonna be happening next. Um, I think the third is really interpersonal skills as things get more and more automated. Uh, what's rising to the top is you have to be able to deal with people. Um, and so I think that would be a high factor too. And as you say, remotely, it takes a lot more attention. It takes a lot more communication. It takes a lot more clarity, a lot more contact to have that really work. You know, now is the time to do this, right? I mean, you're working right. from home. You've got a little bit more time to yourselves. You probably should level up. Uh, I think it's a great term. Well, well it's kind of the one of the, oh, that make you level up. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that we see is, um, you know, if, when companies really think about, like, what are the skills your leaders are going to need to actually be able to navigate through this type of crises? Like the World Economic Forum had already put out that the top skills needed out of five out of the 10 of the top skills needed in sort of the new future of work were all what you would consider, quote unquote, soft or interpersonal skills, mm -hmm. right? It's adaptability, it's leadership skills, it's influence. And so now what we're seeing is 
companies that are able to move beyond just first thinking about business continuity, like let's make sure we can get everybody, you know, situated at home, able to be able to connect and productive. What's going to very quickly follow is how do you keep those employees engaged? How do you keep those employees connected? And then how do you also help them start to develop these really critical urgent skills that they'll need to be able to continue to push the business forward when your entire environment and world has sort of been turned upside down, right? And I think a lot of those are the things where it can also vary from leader to leader. So having an approach like ours where you have a solution that can personalize that approach, we have a capabilities and a skills-driven model built into our platform. So based on data and feedback that we collect around the leader, we can show which are the most important skills that this leader needs to develop, you know, based on real-time data. I think that is going to be increasingly important for companies as they move into this next stage of the crisis. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, as someone who had a privilege of leading large organizations for many, many years, I can tell you those soft skills are the hardest skills to develop right. and, and most important skills. Uh, That's right. So, so, yeah, definitely. so, so Christine, let's say, uh, you know, there's 10, 10 of us executives. We've been on sounding boards for a couple of months now. Um, what are the common results? And I know every individual has strengths and weaknesses, so you're not gonna have uniformity in terms of results across 10 different clients, but what are the, some common results after, let's say, a few months of being active on sounding board? Well, I know Lori will definitely have something to say, so, but I will actually just introduce one really simple idea. It's one that we use as a way of measuring progress and outcomes. And it's really this idea of narrowing the gap. So like I said, we use data and feedback to think about what skills you need to develop. And if you really think about soft skills and leadership, what is that, right? Leadership is, it's actually perception and it's perception of your behaviors and perception by others of how well you're able to influence, communicate, you know, all these different types of skills. So if you think about, you know, just even your own experience, the times that maybe you and your manager weren't connecting as well, or maybe someone on your team and you had a gap you needed to fill where your perception of their skill set was probably a little different than their awareness of where they were at that same skill set. Right. We're right. able to really narrow that gap so that those come closer together across the relevant stakeholders around a leader that's one of the main data points we look at in our data because we can measure real-time progress of those skills to say, look, we're having a real impact on making sure that you're better aligned with the most important people around you, your manager, your team, your peers. I could have used sounding board. <laughs> you still can. My company would have been so much better for to learn. That's not true. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, well, Christine, Lori, thank you so much for sharing your insights on where Sounding Board's going and how people can actually learn and, and actually get leadership advice, especially given the current situation today. Um, you can follow both of these awesome individuals. Christine Tao, yeah, Christine P-T-A-O on Twitter. You can follow Lori at Lori M-A-Z-A-N um, on Twitter as well, co-founders of Sounding Board. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks thank for having us. Thank you so much. It, there's no better time now for leaders to continue to stay teachable and grow. And for a lot of us, it's, it's, it's intentional struggle because as Ray said, the older you get, the, the less appetite you may have for learning. That's certainly not true for the guests and uh, you know, our, our family on Disrupt TV, but uh, it is important uh, to, to reflect and, and grow. Uh, we do encourage you to you know, follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes. We have lots of videos. Again, we're, I think, five guests away from 400 unique guests. This was episode 183. So we've been doing this for four plus years. Next week on Disrupt TV, we have Ian Gotts, founder, CEO of Element Cloud. We have Gretchen Alcorn, group vice president, product strategy at Oracle. And we have one of our favorite return guests, first ballot Hall of Fame inductee to Disrupt TV, Holger Mueller, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. Holger always brings a prop to the show, and he's one of the most interesting, uh, smart people that Ray and I have the privilege of calling a friend. So it's going to be a, another incredible show. Ray, the only normalcy I have during the week is Fridays, because for four and a half years we've been doing this distant, remote, virtual 
you know, uh, community building. All the other days are completely different. <laughs> so your closing remarks on a, on a Friday afternoon after we've completed episode 183 of Disrupt TV. <laughs> I'm going to say, folks, stay safe, uh, shelter in place, check in on folks. Uh, if you know of someone who is in your community that might need some help, uh, make sure they can get to the right supplies or medicine. Please help them out. Uh, we do have a national pandemic and crisis, uh, and uh, we thank you for spending some time with us today. Um, watch out. Uh, we're going to try uh, some different changes next week. We're going to try out a new platform uh, and get some distribution out to some of this uh, different sources. You might hear us all live on YouTube, SoundCloud, uh, LinkedIn, Periscope. I think uh, we're going to try to broadcast live on both our Periscope uh, channels. Well, it's, we're going to test this out. It's going to be fun. Uh, and of course, uh, you can always catch us here. So 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, every Friday. Come catch us with some of the most interesting folks. Bala, anything on your end? Anything you want to share with us? No, I, I just know that uh, Constellation Research yourself and some of your analyst uh, thought leaders are putting a lot of content regarding COVID-19, uh, you know, it's leadership, it's business, it's technology. Obviously, your, your John Hopkins uh, healthcare safety background, uh, you, you know, you, you're now on major media talking about, you know, lessons learned and uh, potential expectations of the new norm post-pandemic. So, you know, if you're interested, the audience, in, in really understanding where we are and where we may be, there's incredible content coming out of Constellation. So be on the lookout for that. And we'll no. see you next Friday. See you next Friday. Take care. Thanks. Talk everyone. more about the post-pandemic playbook. <laughs> you got it. Absolutely needed. See you next Friday. Thanks, everyone.